everyone, it's Leslie Ludi, host of the Set Apart Girl podcast, Biblical Encouragement for Women of All Ages. Today in our series on Bravehearted Womanhood, we're going to be talking about living for heaven's applause. Another way you could say that would be laying down our pursuit of popularity. There's a popular notion in Christian circles today that we can actually be a better influence for Christ if we learn how to fit into the world and if we're applauded and accepted by the culture. And you see this really so many different places in Christian circles. I remember hearing something on a Christian radio station one time where the radio station was so excited that a popular Christian artist was invited to open for a secular rock concert. Now, this guy wasn't able to share his faith. He wasn't able to really make it even known that he was a Christian, but just the fact that he was associated with a very ungodly secular rock star in the public eye was seen as a positive thing by this radio Christian radio show. I remember being in a pastor's office one time, a very popular, well-known type of pastor, and he had his wall covered with photos of himself with very ungodly, popular Hollywood celebrities and athletes. And the idea was sort of like, if we can be associated with the things that are popular in this world, then maybe people will think of Christianity as being more appealing, and maybe it'll give us a better witness. And it seems like any Christian who has found favor with Uh, Hollywood or has had a reality TV show or has been on Oprah somehow automatically gains credibility in the Christian world. We somehow think that if we are popular in the world's eyes, we are a great witness for Christ. But I want to look deeper into this and ask the question, is this a biblical concept? Because it's not just in the area of celebrities and well-known Christians trying to hobnob with celebrities. It affects our daily life because we oftentimes think, you know, if I could just gain more popularity, if I could just be accepted by the world, fit into the world, prove that I can be a Christian and be popular and really fit into what's accepted by the culture. If I could just get there, then I could be a great witness for Christ. And we oftentimes use that justification to just excuse, compromise, and being involved in things that we should not be involved in, watching things and experiencing things that we should not be watching and experiencing, and being associated with things that we shouldn't be associated with under the banner of, well, I'm doing this as a witness for Christ. I've encountered a few different women who have started out as Christians, strong Christian witnesses, and then they got more and more into the Hollywood scene. They became actresses. And the idea originally was that, hey, I'll use this platform for witnessing for Christ. But what I've seen happen more and more is the more they get into that world of popularity and success, the less of a witness of Christ they become and the more like the world they become. I want to look at the story from scripture of Stephen's martyrdom in the book of Acts. Now, I've given this story before on previous podcasts, but it's so powerful and it's really worth studying in an in-depth way specifically when it comes to this issue of whose applause are we living for? Are we supposed to be pursuing popularity and applause from this world? Stephen was taken before the religious leaders of the day, and he was asked to speak for himself. And he offered this very powerful sermon, this very well-argued sermon, 
But he ends his sermon with a rebuke to everyone who is listening, basically telling them that they need to get right with God. And it was not the smartest way to win his audience. Let's just put it that way. He wasn't trying to win their brownie points. He wasn't trying to win favor. In fact, it's almost like he knew where this was going to lead, but he would not water down his message. He would not compromise the truth of what God had asked him to speak. He was not living for the favor or the applause of the world. He was living for an entirely different kind of applause. And he made the audience so upset with him They despised him. They gnashed their teeth at him. They tore their clothes. They were just, they could not wait to rid the earth of his life. And so they dragged him outside and they began stoning him to death. Now, you really can't get any greater rejection from the world and from the culture than people who are literally so upset with you that they want you dead and they want you to die a painful, violent death. But what's happening during Stephen's death is that he is looking up into heaven and seeing something so different than the scene all around him. It's almost like he's not even noticing what's happening to his body. In Acts 7.56, it says, But he, meaning Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That is just an amazingly powerful image if you think about achieving the absolute pinnacle of worldly rejection. At the same time, you're achieving the greatest honor that you could ever have in God's kingdom, which is Jesus Christ standing to welcome you into his presence. And I don't know about you, but that's really the only kind of standing ovation I would ever want or need, to have the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God as you're giving up your life. And you can just hear him saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Can you imagine living for any other kind of applause than that. We often believe that if we have favor with the world, we'll win them to Christ. But Stephen's story shows us something very different, that we cannot have the applause of the world and the applause of heaven at the same time. And we might have a temporary applause. We might accomplish something that makes us look impressive in the world's eyes, sort of like Eric Little when he won the Olympic gold medal. He had that momentary applause of the world, but he had his eyes fixed on a much greater prize than the applause of the world. And when he chose to give up his Olympic career for missionary service in China, the world sort of looked at him like he was crazy and he no longer had the same kind of popularity, but he was living for something so much more than worldly popularity. An important question that we all have to grapple with is this, what kind of standing ovation are we seeking? the world or Christ? Now we need to ask the question when we are grappling with that, should we even expect to be liked and accepted by the world? I think when you look at a lot of modern Christianity, there's so much effort and time and money going into being accepted by the world, having these fancy multimedia stage shows and rock concerts instead of worship services and Starbucks in the church lobby and video games in the Sunday school rooms. And the whole point is let's make ourselves really appealing to the world, this this world that wants to be entertained and to be coddled and to have everything look 
slick and expensive and all the bells and whistles and let's appeal to them. And when you walk into a church and you see those things, it can be very easy to think, well, I need to jump on that bandwagon. I need to be accepted and liked and fit into this world. But think about this. Jesus Christ, the one who alone deserves all glory and honor and praise, was actually despised and rejected by the world. So why should we expect a different reception? In Isaiah 53, 3, it says that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So in that scripture, you see that he was despised and he still is despised. The message of the cross is utter foolishness to the world, to those who are perishing. And so why do we spend so much time trying to win the world's favor? Some examples on the personal level, oftentimes we're asking questions like this. How many Facebook friends can I get? How many selfies can I post? How can I get people to like and approve me? How much attention can I gain for my accomplishments? How can I get noticed for my uniqueness and personality? How can I let the world see more of me? And if you look at some examples on the church level in modern Christianity, as I mentioned earlier, the questions often being asked are, how can we bring more of pop culture into our churches so that the world will be attracted to Christianity? How can we make our Christian leaders into hip, trendy celebrities so that non-believers will be impressed with them? Or how can we soften and smooth over the gospel of Christ to make it more palatable and acceptable in today's culture? I love what Catherine Booth said about this. She was one of the co-founders of the Salvation Army. And this was this was many generations ago, but it's still as relevant now as it was back then. She said, when the church and the world can jog comfortably together, you may be sure there is something wrong. The world has not altered. Its spirit is exactly the same as it ever was. And if Christians were equally faithful and devoted to the Lord and separated from the world, living so that their lives were a reproof to all ungodliness, the world would hate them as much as it ever did. So we can see that a sign of real Christianity is this. If the world hates us, we are likely doing something right. And if the world loves us, we are likely doing something wrong. Even strong Christians in history who had that momentary favor with the world, like Eric Little, still walked a narrow way and still had a lot of people who didn't understand the decisions that they made. When he made the decision that he would not run his race on Sunday, everyone thought he was crazy. And when he made his decision to leave the Olympic career or the athletic career that was glittering in front of him and choose obscurity on the mission field, nobody understood and nobody applied. That. So again, you may have that momentary favor with the world, but if you continue following that narrow way of the cross, the world will eventually look at you with a pretty sketchy eye. 1 John 3.14 says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. And Jesus says in John 15.19, If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
I love the story of John Wesley, one of the most well-known preachers in Christian history. He was so used to being pelted with rotten fruit and garbage everywhere he went because of the offense of the cross, because of the offense of the message that he represented. That happened to him every single day, and he rejoiced because he knew that he was on the right track, that he was speaking uncompromised truth when he received that kind of persecution and hatred from those he was speaking to. And there was a day in his life where he was traveling and speaking and no one threw rotten fruit at him for an entire day. And at the end of the day, he was very disturbed by this. And he got down on his knees and he said, oh, God, show me if I've done something wrong because nobody's throwing things at me. I need to know if I'm still speaking the right message and I still have favor in your eyes. And at that moment, somebody pelted him in the face with some kind of rotten fruit. And he got up happy from his knees because he knew he was on the right path. What an incredibly different way of thinking from the way most of us think. Most of us think, well, if the world hates us, we're doing something wrong. If, if people, friends and family and non-believers in our life don't understand our lives and make fun of us and, and are uncomfortable with our decisions, then we must be doing something wrong. But in all likelihood, if that's happening, if we are going through those things because of what we represent, then we're doing something right. So I want to ask this question. When the world looks at you, what kind of radiance do they see? There are two different kinds of light that we can shine to this world. Jesus says that we are to let our light shine before men. And a lot of times we take that out of context and we think that means to shine with our own self-radiance, our own uh, uniqueness to this world. Self-radiance is basically a temporary self-built charm designed to gain approval and acceptance from others. And many of us are very good at shining with that kind of radiance. Sort of like, I want everyone to see how unique I am, how clever I am, how brilliant I am, how beautiful I am, or or even put on a veneer of those things so I can gain approval from others. And it says in Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. And charm in that verse means to find favor in the eyes of someone and be accepted by them. For example, popularity and approval. So stop and think about that for a minute. When we're trying to reflect a self-radiance, that temporary self-built charm, where we're trying to prove how valuable we are and how unique we are and how beautiful we are, whatever it is, to this world, gain popularity in one way or another, we are choosing a path that the Bible says is deceitful. And deceitful in that verse means a lie, a disappointment, a falsehood. It's something that will never bring fulfillment. It will never bring satisfaction. It will never bring that sense of accomplishment that we are really desiring. I think sometimes we fall prey to the lie that if we could just gain popularity, if we could just be surrounded by people who just love us and applaud us and approve us, and if we just have gazillions of Facebook friends, you know, we'd have that sense of fulfillment and that our life really matters. But in reality, we're building our life on a deceitful path, which is based on a lie, a disappointment, and a falsehood. But there's a different kind of light that we can shine to this world, and it's Christ's radiance, a lasting light that shines from the inside out from a soul whose gaze is fixed upon Jesus Christ, from one who has been in the presence of the king. And you see that in the story of Stephen. When he was looking up into heaven, everyone who gazed upon his face saw his face looking like the face of an angel. 
that's amazing. You really can't get much more radiant than that. And yet it was not his own self-radiance. He was not trying to gain popularity with his audience or showcase himself to those around him. He had his eyes completely fixed on Jesus Christ. And that is what made his face shine like the face of an angel. And he was willing to even give up his very life to choose heaven's applause over this world's applause. Another example is Moses when he went into the presence of God. In Exodus 34, 35, it says, whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face shone. And then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with God. So his face was so radiant after being in the presence of the king that he had to put a veil over his face. That shows the incredible difference between reflecting our own light or our own radiance versus reflecting the radiance of Christ. We are not called to radiate or shine our personality or our abilities or our cleverness to this world. We are called to die that he might live through us. We are called to get out of the way so that he can clearly be seen in and through us. And if we fix our gaze on him, others will follow our gaze upward. I love this story, and I may have shared it before on one of these podcasts, but it's about R.A. Torrey, who led some revivals in the early 1900s in England, and he booked one of the biggest venues in England called the Royal Albert Hall, and it held several thousand people, and even the most popular opera singers or circus performers in that day, because that was what was popular in the culture at that time, could not fill this auditorium for more than a night or two. And he booked this facility for about a month. And reporters from the newspapers came and everybody wondered, how in the world are you going to possibly fill this place? And Christians came to him and said, you know, you're going to be a laughingstock. If you try to hold revival meetings and this hall is empty, it's going to just make it look like no one's interested in Christianity. You better hire a really famous opera singer or you better hire a circus performer to draw a crowd and then you can preach to the crowd. And he quoted the scripture that Christ said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And he believed that if he simply lifted high the name of Jesus, people would be drawn by the light and the the radiance of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened. That, That Royal Albert Hall was filled to capacity night after night after night. People would wait out in the rain for multiple hours to get in, and they did nothing trendy or popular in the world's eyes to try to draw a crowd. They simply lifted high the name of Jesus. I love what Major Ian Thomas says about this. The Christian life can only be explained in terms of Jesus Christ. And if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, your personality or willpower, your gift, your talent, your money, your courage, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, or your anything, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not yet living it. I don't know if you're familiar with the story from history of a woman named Lilius Trotter. There was recently a documentary made on her life called Many Beautiful Things, which is a great documentary, but it's incredible to study her life and her story because she was born into a wealthy family in the Victorian era in England, and she became a very talented painter and one of the most famous art critics of that day, of that era, took her under his wing and wanted to make her famous, wanted to turn her into a famous painter. And she basically had 
something handed to her on a silver platter that most people could only dream of. She already had a very comfortable, wealthy lifestyle, but now she was being given the opportunity to become one of the most famous artists in her generation and actually go down in the history books. And he said that she needed to give herself entirely to her art. She wrestled intensely with that decision, thinking, if I have this fame and if I have this popularity, you know, couldn't I be a good witness for Christ? But as she wrestled in prayer, she began to realize, you know, I cannot really seek first the kingdom of God and give myself to art in the way that he's telling me to, the way that this art critic is telling me to. So she chose to give up that ability to become famous and to gain popularity in the eyes of this world and to take what many would have considered to be the very lowest place. She sailed for Algeria and she poured out her life in the slums of Algeria for years and years and years. So instead of becoming a famous painter, she became an obscure, unknown missionary. And she was quoted as saying this line, it is loss to keep what God says, give. She had her eyes fixed on a heavenly prize. She realized that if she had clung to fame and fortune and popularity, when God was asking her to give those things up, then she would have chosen that path of emptiness and loss. And if you read her biography, you realize what a rich and fulfilled and joy-filled life that she lived because she was obedient and she took that lowest place and made herself of no reputation just as Christ did. Another great example from history is Amy Carmichael, who is one of my greatest heroes in Christian history. She was a missionary to India. And as a young girl, as a teenage girl or in her early 20s in Ireland, she opened this mission hall for poor young women. They were called the Shollies and they worked in factories. And it was a very big accomplishment because for this young 18, 19-year-old girl to accomplish something where a very large hall was built and donated and fixed up and hundreds of these Shollies were coming every week to be ministered to, they had an opening night ceremony where a lot of leaders in the community had come to dedicate the hall to the work of Christ. And even though Amy was the one who had basically single-handedly put the whole thing together, she did not want to be on the platform with the other speakers on opening night. Instead, she sat among the Shollies in the middle of the audience, just taking a place of obscurity. Her motto was, in all things, I want to give God the preeminence. And later in her life, she had to make a lot of other decisions that involved that kind of humility, living for heaven's applause and and making herself of no reputation and being willing to walk away from applause and popularity in the eyes of this world. And later in her life, she wrote in one of her books, if I covet any place except the dust at the foot of the cross, then I know nothing of Calvary love. So powerful. If we walk the narrow way of the cross, our decisions will often seem completely absurd to the world around us. And we can count on the fact that they will mock, reject, and misunderstand us just as they did Jesus. We cannot seek the applause of the world and the applause of heaven at the same time. In other words, we can't serve popularity and Jesus Christ at the same time. Philippians 2, 5 and 7 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself of no reputation. 
So some final thoughts that I want to share with you today. If you've been chasing after popularity and trying to win favor with the world or fit into the culture, then you aren't really living the set-apart life that God has called you to. I encourage you to take some time to study the way the world treated Jesus Christ, the way the apostles were treated, the way the early Christians were treated. Look at how Christians throughout history have been treated, and it will completely reform your perspective on chasing after popularity. In reality, as it says in Proverbs, favor with the world, that deceitful charm is hollow, empty, and temporary, but heaven's favor lasts for eternity. I pray that you will choose the only kind of applause that is really lasting and fulfilling, the applause of heaven, because truly there is no greater honor we could ever achieve than to receive a standing ovation from our King. I hope you've enjoyed this topic. For more on this subject, please visit setapartgirl.com and consider joining us for our upcoming Set Apart Conference, May 26th and 27th, either in Colorado or via simulcast anywhere you are. I pray that you have a blessed and Christ-centered week.